1: Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard will make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco
2: Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over a hundred years ago, he designed the Alico building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Oral History Institute, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, college football and murder, the Battle of the Brazos.
0: With his left arm, before he could protect himself from the third one, he had a hit land squarely on the left side of his head. He immediately dropped to the ground. A
2: 1926 football game between Baylor and Texas A&M went from rowdy to riot to murder. Author T.G. Webb spent years putting together a book on the dispute. He gives us background on how it happened and talks about potential suspects. So we don't know who it was. He's got an idea. We're going to get to that. I mean. <laughs> and now, join us on a trip into Waco's past.
1: Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio
2: All right, well, welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. Stephen, today we have a very special guest. Why don't you start by how you found our guest here?
3: Uh, We've got uh, Tim Webb, or his pen name T.G. Webb, uh, is with with us today. And it's college football season. Yep. And nothing is more heated or passionate than college football. I've been doing oral histories recently with Coach Grant Taff, and he recommended Tim's book to me. So I went out and grabbed a copy and read it, and it's fantastic. I thought we got to get him on the podcast because most people don't know this story. It's not a story that a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, And it's a really interesting story, and I think Tim's done a great job investigating it. Excellent. So what's the title of the book here? It's Battle of the Brazos, a Texas football rivalry, a riot, and a murder. And this is uh, Tim's first book, but he's got a long—he's a renaissance man. He's a sports writer, salesman, recruiter, stockbroker, worship leader, and pastor. That's
2: and, quite the uh, the resume there. Kind of a hodgepodge it, of, uh, <laughs> of many careers, shall we
0: say. A miniature, as in many, not multiple. <laughs> and he's a fourth-generation Texan.
2: Excellent.
3: They can't say he ain't from around here. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So Tim's done a great job, and, and I, I guess we could start. A great place to start would be maybe set the scene for us long before we get into kind of what we need to know about college football and the early part of the 20th century and, and particularly Southwest Conference football. You do a good job the establishment of the conference and that sort of thing. But maybe give us a sense. We know the place football has in society now, but give us a place of maybe where it was then. Yeah,
0: so, so football was still in Texas, um, you know, within its first three decades or, or right at it, but it was already as popular as it is today. It immediately found fertile ground here. So in the 1920s, in the period that I actually cover, um, it was extremely heated rivalries that you had back in those days. Um, we think we have tough rivalries now, but often you don't see fights in the stands between the opposing student bodies, and that wasn't all that uncommon back in those days. The riot that I mentioned in this book is by far from being the only riot. In fact, the night before this riot took place, there was a high school football game down around Port Arthur or Orange, Texas, where there was a similar incident that happened on the high school football field. And, a student was knocked out, so that that young man, as far as we know, didn't die, as the one in this story did. So, extremely heated rivalries. Um, maybe that was because there was less entertainment options back then, <laughs> so they had more energy to pour into uh, into their sports and stuff like that. But you know, we think we have it big now that football's a religion here in Texas. Um, I would say it was even more intense then.
3: Well, in particular, uh, we're talking about the rivalry between Baylor and Texas A so, and M. So, of course. By the time you get to the setting, there's a history to it you know, going up to this. And so can you talk a little bit about that rivalry in the early part of the century and kind of how it had developed over
0: time? Yeah, a couple of factors there is that Baylor and Texas A&M were two of the earliest teams in the state of Texas to field a varsity football team, uh, A&M being the second after the University of Texas. Uh, Baylor came along a few years later. You had Adran College, which is now Texas Christian University. Um, You had a couple of other universities or colleges then that were filling teams. But Baylor was in the the first 10, at least within the state. And so they all grew up together. And In fact, Baylor's second game ever and their first intercollegiate game ever was with Texas A&M. And so from the Baylor side, at least, that was always a very big game from the very start because their rivalry went back to the inception of of football here in, in Waco at the Baylor campus a obviously had an early history with UT. They played the first college football game ever in the state of Texas uh, back in 1894. Uh, but because of their proximity, that uh, they were within the same geography, so a lot of these students were being recruited by both schools. And just because of travel restrictions back in those days, you know, it, it took a lot longer to go to the West Coast or something, a lot of teams would play their local rivals multiple times in a year. So Baylor and A&M very early got very familiar with one another. And it was usually a one-sided affair, and that began to change in, in time, and that started to set the stage for the rivalry that developed in the 1920s.
3: Can you talk a little bit about the nature of football then, like what the games were like and what the pattern of play was like back then?
0: Yeah, so you know, football, when it first came out, looked nothing like it does now. In fact, the first game ever on a, on a college field was in 1869, And back then, it was more like rugby. It was more like a a scrum. In fact, they had over 20 players on each side of the ball. (laughs) So by the early 20th century, you had started to develop some of the the mode and the the rules that you still have today. Definitely not all of them were there. Uh, The legal pass, the forward pass, wasn't even legal until around 1906. And you early on, you had to go five yards for a first down because everything was gained running on the ground. So, so it's, it is like
2: rugby in that regard.
0: It was very much like rugby. And, and in fact, the offensive formations and everything were very much like rugby, where they would move in mass formations. And you had Teddy Roosevelt had to step in at, at one point around 1905 or so and hold a conference with the big three, Yale, Princeton, and Harvard, uh, where he said, We've got to clean it up or else this, this game's not going to survive. And he was a big fan of the game. But when you have 19 or 20 young men die on a football field within one season, it got some high attention. And that's how the NCAA was formed out of that meeting there in 1905, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. You're you're nodding, so I'm going to go with you. You're you're maybe more (laughs) of an
2: expert there than I am.
0: Out of that, you started to see changes in rules. And one way to reduce some of the violence was to open up the field, make it be 10 yards to get a first down. And then you started having the, the forward pass became legal. And that caused defenses to, to back off, and you no longer had a mass of 22 guys at the line of scrimmage. You started spreading out the field. And immediately the fans took to the, the openness of the, the forward pass and, and what it could do for the game. And so by the 1926 that I write about, uh, you read descriptions of the game, and it could be a modern game, oddly enough. Obviously the uniforms were a lot more primitive uh, they didn't have near the flexibility in the uniforms now. They didn't have the, the hard shell helmets didn't come around until the late 1940s, early 1950s, so you're wearing a leather helmet if you wore anything back in these days. But as far as reading descriptions and the type plays and all that they did, it, it looks very much or sounds very much like the, the modern game that we know now.
2: Very few sponsorships I would assume.
0: I, I would assume. <laughs> you certainly don't read about them a lot. It, it is interesting one of the things in researching this on game day there were a lot of ads in the paper though. That was mm, the day that they yes. knew everyone was going to buy the, the morning paper. And so your home builders and everybody were putting their ads in the paper for, for the big event.
3: You know, one of the things that adds to these Baylor A&M games or these home games Baylor's playing is kind of the spectacle that was the uh, Cotton Palace. And so a lot of our listeners won't be familiar with the Cotton Palace and we haven't done an episode on it yet. We will, Randy. We're working on it. Uh, But maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that added to this environment of the game.
0: Absolutely. It was one of the two biggest factors that I identify in the book of why the rivalry went from being just a local affair between two Central Texas schools that no one outside of their fan bases really paid much attention to to all of a sudden it was one of the hottest tickets on, on the college football uh, schedule every single year. The Cotton Palace is actually a great story, and I'll have to listen to that when you when you record that, because that's going to be a lot of fun history to talk about. The Cotton Palace was actually, in the 1920s, an early rival to the Texas State Fair. It lasted for only two weeks each year in the fall, but it had all of the events that you would expect at a, at a fair back in those days. For example, we even had a roller coaster here in Waco, Texas, and the football field was a, a crude football field. It was built in the infield, of a racetrack where they could actually—it was built for horses—but they sometimes ran dogs, and they even ran cars on it at least once. That, I don't know there's a there's an old photograph of that, and so you had massive crowds being drawn to Waco that all of a sudden started attending this game. It gave people a reason to come back for it. And around that same time, you started to see a consistency in the scheduling. So you had two factors merging there, Mm -hmm. where before some years they played each other three times or two times, and then they'd go a year or two without playing each other. All of a sudden, every year they played annually. It was a marked date on the schedule and it was played in front of some of the largest crowds in the state of Texas at the time.
3: I pulled some figures just so Randy could get a sense of how big the Cotton Palace was. So, the all-time record attendance for a year was 547,242, which is good. which is an unbelievable number. But these numbers even in the 20s they're high. In 1923 they set a single day record for 117,000 attending it. Nice. And so I mean this is a this is a huge event and and you actually do some work in the book trying to estimate how many people may have been at the Cotton Palace that day and how many people may have seen this game that in question that we're talking about.
0: Yeah that's it's an interesting thing in most years you don't see a discrepancy in estimates of the crowd but all of a sudden in this year you get as low an estimate as 18,000 which seemed to be about the standard capacity but when you look at photographs of the Cotton Palace and there's a there's one that's used on, on the cover, and the panoramic is included in the book as well. Uh, when you see the enlarged version of that, you see a lot of people standing along the fence line. So sometimes they had as many as 25,000 people. And that sounds small today. But back then, you've got to think Waco was 35,000 people. Mm. And so that one day you're talking about in the 1920s where you have 117,000 people, that swelled the size of this town, multiple factors of its standard population. Mm. And think about that. You didn't have the roads that you do now. You didn't have the, the big thoroughfares. You didn't have the restaurants, the dining options, the hotel options. I thirty five. I thirty five. Absolutely. So this was it was a great boon for the city of Waco to have this annual two week festival in town that brought people all over for the state of Texas. And then when you started getting in the game, you actually started seeing people come from all across the country to come and attend the homecoming game between Baylor and Texas A and M.
3: Talk about success of those programs early on as far as how AM and m was doing and how Baylor was doing as we go up to the 20s?
0: Yeah, so A&M had some very early success in their football history. Uh, Baylor did, too, in its first few years, but not, not on the same level. And in 1916, Texas A&M was blessed with a coach that just seemed to drop down from the heavens. And uh, his name was Dana Bible, Dana Xenophon Bible, I believe is how Xenophon. His parents <laughs> taught the classics, and so yes, they gave him a very Greek-sounding name. Nice. And I always thought Coach Bible should have come to Baylor. I mean, that would have been <laughs> would perfect. Have been perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you talk about the Bible plan being implemented at UT, it just doesn't ring true. <laughs> and that was his recruiting plan. He ended up at UT in the in the nineteen forties, and um, so at, at the time though. A&M was riding uh, a peak of its success. And in fact, probably a period that hasn't been paralleled since. Mm-hmm. Uh, they certainly have had some some highlights along the year and some great stretches. Uh, but for the entire 10 or 11 years that DX Bible was their coach, they, they were a force to be contended with. And so uh, Baylor had just had more moderate success, really hadn't had a, a huge season. We won the first and I'm now showing my bias, uh, Baylor won <laughs> we. Their, their first, that's right. As a grad, it slips out every once in a while. Ba- Baylor won the first Southwest Conference title in 1915, but then they tried to forfeit it. And They'd had a player that was ruled ineligible. That was the first year of the conference, and one of the reasons the conference came about was eligibility of players. And so no one ever seconded it, so it, it technically remained on their record books as, as Baylor's championship. And for many years, the, the school kind of downplayed that factor. Now they gladly boast it. But Baylor was was not riding at the top of the conference in 1926. And so they'd hired a new coach that year. They had had some ups and downs. They had a great coach right before he came in. But their success had only been recent. It had not mm-hmm. been something that the program was used to. All of a sudden you have Baylor winning some games and you have A&M that is used to winning and they start clashing on the field. And it, it just increased the rivalry, the, the passion of the rivalry.
3: You give a good description of, and this is going back a bit, the consolidation of the Southwest Conference in 1915. Can you just share with the listeners how that came about and who came and who didn't come? And we can start thinking about future directions this could have gone.
0: It's a a great history. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's something that I've looked at maybe wanting to write. There's not a good history of the Southwest Conference out there at this time. Uh, The last good one was written about 30 years ago or so. And so there was a league in Texas at the time, a very loose-knit association of colleges and universities called the TIAA, Texas Intercollegiate Athletic Association. It's a tongue twister. There, There wasn't a lot of mechanisms there to enforce eligibility, enforce standardized rules. Even the size of the ball could sometimes vary. And so in 1914, you had the major schools of the Southwest come together to start to discuss to form this new league that would be formed, which eventually became the Southwest Conference. Uh, A fun fact there is that two of the early teams in the Southwest Conference were UT and Oklahoma. You know, we think that it wasn't until 1996 when they came back together in the Big 12 that they were uh, conference rivals for the first time, but actually they were for the first few years of the Southwest Conference Now, over 100 years ago, Mm. other schools that were invited uh, were the University of Mississippi, um, Louisiana State University. Mississippi never reciprocated, (laughs) never, never showed interest. Um, LSU did. LSU attended the first meeting and attended the second meeting, but then decided not to become a permanent member. Some of the stuff I don't trace in the book is that in the first five or six years, you have some schools coming and going. Rice was entered on a uh, provisional basis, uh, the Rice Institute at that time before they were Rice University, and then they left and then they came back. And there was Daniel Baker College, I believe, was there. Phillips College up out of Oklahoma uh, had a brief stint in in the league. And, you know, for fans of the Southwest Conference that remember the final eight schools or the nine schools before uh, Arkansas left, uh, maybe don't realize Texas Tech wasn't in the league until the mid-1950s. Houston Mm -hmm. not until 1976, I believe. Mm -hmm. And when the league founded, TCU wasn't uh, wasn't there. And you didn't have um, SMU. You know, didn't start football, I believe, until 1917 or around then when the school was founded. So certainly the makeup of the league in its early days was different than than what most college fans would know. Mm -hmm. Well, set the stage for us uh, in October of 1926, which
3: is this period we're going to focus on. And you paint a picture leading up to this game on October 30th. So just kind of set the stage for us, if you would, leading up to that game.
0: Yeah, so that is something that no one had ever done before. Uh, in, in newspaper articles about this, and there, there haven't been a lot in the last 92 years, you kind of saw the story revived in the 90s, and it would come up every couple of years. And uh, journalists, uh, of course, their job isn't to do deep digging necessarily on, on history, but they never looked beyond one former incident that happened. Sometimes you hear it one year, two years, or three years before the, the event that I write about. And it was actually two years before where there was almost a riot. And that turns out, though, that was not even the first event. Two years earlier than that, you had an incident where there was almost near-right where a 1,000 cadets rushed onto the field and started assault might be a little bit of a strong word, but started harassing the Baylor fans that were celebrating a victory. And so you started to see what had formerly been a collegial uh, rivalry, where there was good feelings between the two schools, all of a sudden started to deteriorate around 1920, 1921. The difference there is Baylor all of a sudden was competitive on the field. A&M had really owned their number. There was a period of four or five seasons where Baylor didn't even score against the Aggies. But each year, the crowds were getting bigger. People were coming and supporting. And in 1922, Baylor had this very innovative coach, something that we've seen in these parts in more recent times. And his name is Frank Bridges, and he brought Baylor their first Southwest Conference championship that was non-disputed. And following that game, that's when you have that 1922 incident where Baylor's trying to celebrate on the field, and you have some Aggies rushing in and harassing the fans. Nothing happened. Uh, The police were able to to bring a little bit of calm to the situation. Then in 1924, you have Baylor wins again. They beat the Aggies again. And you have a little bit stronger repeat of what you'd seen in 1922. But also in 1924 at halftime, you have a performance where Baylor brought a vehicle, what they called the Bucking Ford. And it was a Ford vehicle, um, a Roadster or possibly an early model of a truck, that had a barrel in the back that was painted in A&M's colors. And there was a cowboy in Baylor's colors riding it as though Baylor was riding A&M to victory. <laughs> the players didn't always leave the field during halftime back in those days. They would just go sit on the bench and they, they wouldn't necessarily re- you know, go back to the locker rooms. And so you have this vehicle got very close to striking a couple of the, the Aggie players, two or three of them. And all of a sudden you had consternation among the Aggie faithful in the stands, the cadets. And they started to sense that there was trouble. And so this was first and foremost on their mind. And they were looking for trouble. But Baylor was looking for trouble as well because they thought if we win, there's going to be a fight after the game. And so emotions were running high when A&M came to town in 1926. The difference is it happened at halftime, and that's what caught everybody by surprise. Uh, No one was, I think, totally taken aback that there was trouble between the two, but no one thought it was going to happen at halftime. Mm
3: Mm-hmm. Well, walk us through events, just w- what, what occurs, you know, the, the, the question's going to be whose fault was it? Well, we'll deal with that later sure. um, <laughs> because, and, and who did it, which we'll deal with that later. Cause I know you have theories on that as well, but to those that aren't familiar with the event, it'd be useful if you could just kind of walk us through events as you kind of reconstructed them in your research.
0: Absolutely, and thanks for uh, holding the blame pointing until later. <laughs> Don't want anyone to tune out at this point necessarily uh, because that is still probably somewhat of a contentious issue, uh, oddly enough, 92 years later. So, yeah, the events that led up to it, obviously emotions were running high. It was the biggest game of the year for both schools. Even at that point, the the rivalry with Baylor in A&M's eyes was probably comparable to what it was with UT. And certainly the numbers that you saw at the games would, would say that, that they saw it as just as big an event. Uh, for the third year in a row, it was Baylor's homecoming. So that added even more passion to it. And you know that would be Anim wanting to ruin the event for Baylor. and that would be more Baylor faithful on hands and even more rabid because they've been celebrating in town for two or three days their their school. And so during halftime, when no one was expecting trouble to arise, all of a sudden you have another vehicle pull on the field like you did two years earlier. And p- leading up to that, there had actually been some, maybe uh, maybe juvenile tactics that had occurred on the field. Some Baylor freshmen had come out dressed in mock uniforms, mocking the, the A&M cadets' uniforms, and they'd done some mock calisthenics. That was something A&M used to do at halftime. They would come out and do military drills as part of their halftime performance, and that year they didn't, and so you had some Baylor kids coming out and mocking the Aggie routine. So what would a mock uniform look like? You know, I wish we had pictures of that, and that's that's <laughs> something I really like to it. see. You know, as far as I know, I remember the day that I, I heard about this event was at a, a- Baylor and a and game in 2008, and you had a couple of Baylor kids come out with a Baylor line dressed as A&M cadets holding hands and skipping across the field. So it could have been something <laughs> as benign as that. They looked like orderlies. So it wasn't the right shade Uniform. So, uniform
2: so like to disparage their masculinity possibly possibly
0: okay and and I, I think that that's some of maybe what is a little bit implied there too there was a hazing ritual they called it where the Baylor freshmen bent over and some upperclassmen presumably paddled them right there on the middle of the field okay <laughs> uh, they had some streamers and Baylor colors tucked in their pants and they pulled those out and ran the streamers around in front of the A&M cadet section so you had a you had a lot of mocking going on and you okay. had a lot of kind of ribbing, but nothing at that point was predicting that anything was about to to happen. It wasn't until this vehicle came on the field, and that brought back memories among the cadets of what had happened two years earlier. And before you know it, some cadets are on the field, and they appear to be attacking the vehicle. And that's when, as one Baylor witness at the time, and I use it as a a chapter title, All Hades Broke Loose. And you had one of the, the largest mass riots on an athletic field in American history.
2: Mm-hmm. So you you described what the vehicle looked like previously. Was this a similar type of situation, or was it just a, a vehicle that we don't have a description of?
0: So that is, and I may be the only person that found this funny, but in the research, you have the head AM and leader that says in a testimony after the fight that he had asked the who he presumed to be the Baylor head yell leader, and that is the correct term. Uh, Aggies will not be happy to know that, but in those days, Baylor's cheerleaders were called yell leaders. And he had asked him, uh, warned him not to bring a Ford onto the field, uh, not to bring the bucking Ford. Yes, a bucking Ford, I'm sorry. (laughs) And when he was asked later to say, did you tell them not to bring this Ford, he said, I never thought there was going to be a different kind. (laughs) And so Baylor didn't bring the bucking Ford, so presumably it's a different vehicle than what had come out two years earlier. But just the side of any vehicle, I think, would have, would have yeah. triggered it. And, and it was. It was a Ford Roadster that was stripped down. Uh, the back was removed, so it looked a little bit like a flatbed truck possibly. And, and that's where there have been a lot of myths that have arisen that it was a float, uh, that it was a truck, or that it was this or that. It was, uh, from all testimony that I, I could ascertain, it appeared to be a Ford Roadster that had been just stripped down to, to a single cab where there was maybe like a bench seat across the front. Okay. But there are also co-eds involved this time. Yeah, and this is another part that is it's tragic, but there's uh, one of the funniest comments in in the book comes out because of that. There were women uh, dressed in costumes that day, if you want to call it costumes. They were dressed in they each held a, a different placard of a year of a big Baylor victory. Not a Baylor victory over AM, though that is often misreported. And there's actually a book that I reproduce in in the book from uh, the Waco newspaper at the time that shows they weren't carrying signs mocking A and There was a victory over TCU, a victory over Texas, and so those victories had occurred in different years. And so each of the ladies was dressed in an apparel, an outfit that was fitting of the year that she represented. And so they were sitting around the vehicle. A couple were in the cab with the the young boy that was driving the vehicle. And so later A and M's one of their defenses was that they thought it was boys dressed as women, even though there's ample evidence in their own testimony through an internal investigation at A and M that that was not what started the fight. But that was one of the funny things later that the Aggies uses their defense that they had never they would never knowingly harm a woman. And Baylor repeated it as no Aggie had ever knowingly touched a woman. So <laughs> once again a little shot at the, the masculinity there. And uh It's kind of interesting that even in tragedy, people could keep their sense of humor. And you think if they could have only done that a little bit sooner, the whole tragedy could have been avoided.
3: So the narrative of this goes, a couple of, and I don't know if it's cadets or A&M students jump out of the stands. Can you take us through that? What happens?
0: Yes. So at this time, all A&M students were cadets. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't drop that requirement until the 1960s. And so it was an all-male institution. And you had a a couple of cadets. Early reports said three. Only two were ever identified, and in future accounts it appeared it was primarily two, actually jumped over the, the fence and ran for the vehicle when they saw it pass in front of their cheering section. An interesting point there is is that it has been presumed sometimes that they were underclassmen. And yet they were described as wearing high, shiny boots. And in my research, I actually were, was able to name the two cadets for the first time ever. And they were seniors because only the seniors got to wear the high, shiny boots. Mm. And so there was evidence of that in early testimony. But it has been the myths that have grown up around it was there was a couple of rash freshmen or underclassmen. The seniors stayed back. They, they tried to restrain. And while that's true, there were a lot of Aggies that showed or cadets that showed a lot of restraint and didn't rush on the field. And it was due to upperclassmen holding back the the younger ones. The two that actually sparked the riot were seniors. And so one gets over the fence very quickly and before anyone can blink an eye, he's diving into the vehicle and that knocks one of the young ladies loose. And that's all that it took for, for the Baylor students to see that there was trouble and that would spark the, the fight that perhaps they were a little too eager to join.
2: So what would this fight look like? You're going off of accounts, but
0: what's the scene look like? Sheer pandemonium. And, <laughs> and so I say that early in the book that uh, while thousands watched it in stunned horror, very few could explain what they had seen because it happened, and it seemed to happen to spectators. to so the average spectator and the fan, and you know, Joe Citizen in Waco, it appeared that this started for no reason whatsoever. They didn't understand the underlying currents, what had happened in 1922, what had happened in 1924, and just the souring of relations between the two student bodies. And so most of it occurred down on the AM side of the field, and where you had a, a mass of students just... Totally huddled around this now disabled Ford vehicle, with the with the young driver desperately trying to get out of the crowd without getting, you know, uh, his his teeth knocked in or something like <laughs> that. But you have upwards of about a thousand students, according to the San Antonio newspaper at the time, and and when you read other witness testimonies and all too, and you kind of piece it together, that number seems to be pretty accurate, and yet it was very heavily favored on the Baylor side. There were many more. So when the A&M students, when the cadets rushed into the fight, they just rushed in to, to fight mano a mano, fist to fist. Uh, the Baylor students took as an occasion to pick up anything that they could carry onto the field and to, to use it as weapons. And that's where you kind of set the scene for tragedy. And so while you've got this big mass down around the 15 or 20 yard line in front of the A&M cheering section, you have a separate mass of people starting to gather out around the 50 yard line. And that's where the action that, that I actually detail took place. hmm yeah, and,
3: and Tim does this in the book. He kind of triangulates different people saw different things. And tell us the events that lead up to uh, Sessam's. Am I saying that right? Yes, yeah, yeah, Charles yeah, Sessoms. Yeah, uh, Sesum's uh, injury uh, initially. Yeah.
0: yeah, tragic, tragic story there. Um, he was a senior as well. And so there has been uh, myths or beliefs ever since that he went on the field to help young women off the field or that he went on to restrain the other cadets from, from fighting. But we know from testimony of the young man who was sitting next to him and had been with him since they arrived in town that morning that they actually went down on the field to join in the fight. And that's one of the points that I got to settle for hopefully all history when, when people debate this story in the future, if they do, that we, we know why he went on the field. And so he saw what was going on. He saw that his, his fellow cadets were greatly outnumbered, and he went down to join in the fray. He barely got on the field. Someone took a swing at him with a, a club as he was trying to get over the fence. And it was that uh, young man that he most likely pursued then across the field. And he fended off a couple of blows and, uh, with his left arm. And before he could protect himself from the third one, uh, he, he had a, a hit uh, land squarely on the left side of his, his head. And uh, he immediately dropped to the ground. And so you've got this wild scene going on. And that is what led to some people not knowing who had done it, because how do you pick out one person out of a thousand and say, that's the person that, that swung the fatal blow?
2: So you say club, is it just like a piece
0: of wood or something someone brought with them? or? Yeah, so you've got various descriptions of it, but the most consistent description, and from who I deem to be the most reliable people testifying, it appeared to be part of a wooden chair. And so you've got to think, again, this is more primitive, you know, not McLean Stadium with our or fancy uh, seat backs and all. Uh, Back then, you had wooden bleachers, and you had that day you had extra seating down on the field level where the Baylor freshman football team was seated because in those days before the 1970s, freshmen couldn't compete in varsity sports in in college. And so a lot of the freshman players had worn their uniforms that day to get into the Cotton Palace for free. (laughs) If they looked like they were with the team, they weren't going to be charged admission. And so they had front row seats right there on the field level in front of the Baylor cheering section, and it appears that many of them, when they got up to go into the fight, picked up their chairs and broke them into pieces that they could swing. And so it was about a four foot long piece, would have resembled about the size of a baseball bat, which is an interesting point that I don't dwell on a lot in the book. But one of the, or two of the suspects actually had played baseball. And so the blow was so well delivered, it strengthens the case that it possibly could have been one of those two suspects because he, he swung it very well. And in fact, it was asked in the AM investigation did he swing it back from fully over his shoulder? was asked of one of the witnesses, and he said that, that the uh, the young man that had swung the blow actually had. And so that means he wasn't swinging wildly. He, he took good aim. He knew what he was doing, and he was expert at it. And and he hit his mark on, on the third attempt there. So about a four-foot-long piece of
2: a wooden chair. So the cadet was going over the fence, and a Baylor person hit him initially? Is that how it worked? So he's going over the fence, and a Baylor, uh, presumably
0: a Baylor young man, because it, he wasn't in a uniform or anything, someone took a swing at him. and okay. It, since he was wearing an Aggie uniform, we, we assumed that that was a, a Baylor person. And, and all the evidence points to that that was the same person that would eventually deal the, the, uh, land the blow that would end up killing Sessoms. And so he avoided that. He was able to duck that blow, got over the fence, and pursued this person through the, the field and through the mass of people. One witness actually testified that uh, the young man was at least telling him, you know, stay back or stop or something like that warning. Sessoms not to pursue because Sessoms was much taller than the, the young man that he was pursuing from, from the testimony. He had not been hit up until then and evidence later suggested uh, one of the doctors that inspected the body after he died said it appeared he had died from a single blow.
2: So you were saying also that the cadets were not brandishing weapons per se but the Baylor students were? There's not a
0: single shred of evidence that an a student used anything but his fist in, in the fight that day.
2: Was that something to do with their machismo culture? <laughs> yeah, so they, they
0: had a saying at that time, and it's another chapter heading that I use called There Shall Be No Regrets. That was one of the things the two schools just disputed because A&M talked a lot about their great sportsmanship at the time and that they wanted to be known for acting in a certain way, and yet they were accused for being somewhat rowdy at that time and that they weren't living up to that ideal. And so, yeah, when, when they went in, I would think it was probably because they thought they could handle themselves. You know, uh, what is this saying, six foot tall and a mile wide? And that seemed to be kind of the mindset that prevailed among the cadets. It was the Baylor students, though, that picked up bottles, definitely the pieces of the wooden chair. Uh, There was one student that claimed he even saw a metal rod that had been pulled up uh, around one of the fences. Uh, There was a wooden fence around the field, and uh, another witness said that he'd seen a student breaking up the wooden fence to take it in. Uh, there were reports later, though, that Baylor had brought in clubs in athletic trunks and had set them by the side of the field. So they brought them in what would have looked like a benign trunk, maybe full of shoes or other athletic gear. And that as the fight started, they opened the trunks and they were handing out weapons. And then when the fight was over, mysteriously, every single weapon got back in those trunks and got off the field without anyone being able to prove it. So you, you only hear that after the fact. No one made that claim immediately. They went and reported it to police or anything. So that seemed to me to be a kind of a story, and I, I mention it. Uh, But I dismissed it because there's really no substantiating evidence for that. It looks like that the students took advantage of what was on hand at the moment,
2: and they weren't shy about using it as weapons. So the actual incident where the guy dies, it sounds to me almost like the Baylor kid got a little overzealous and went to try and hit this kid. And then if he's being pursued by him, is probably maybe going to be swinging a little bit more erratically because he's fearing for his safety at this point. Right. So he, he takes two swings as Sessoms pursues him across the field. And twice,
0: Sessoms kind of raises his left arm and, and deflects the blow. But he seemed to get a good swing. He got his footing, and he put it over the shoulder and swung it with, with as much force as he could. It was at that point that supposedly Sessoms there had lunged at him, and it was as he was lunging and probably lowering his body that he got his head in line with where the swing would have been coming from the shoulder of a shorter man. And that's what caused it to hit him in his head instead of maybe on a shoulder. But certainly, one, whoever you know dealt the, the final blow was not justified for using the weapon at all. So we don't know who it was. Well, he's going oh, okay. to.
3: He's got an <laughs> idea. We're going to get to that. I mean, you know, researching a topic like this, it's misremembered in so many different ways. Or the, yes. the, There's the history and then the story. And so you can understand why the story is told. If they bring in a trunk with weapons, this is premeditated mm-hmm. and it's not something that happens spontaneously at the game. And so you can understand why each side would add things to the story mm-hmm. over time because you said the 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 hard
0: record. How long how long do you think this riot lasts? It lasted ten minutes. Uh, okay. That is what the newspaper reports okay. reported. That it was started and was over within ten minutes. Yeah. Hmm.
3: And so there's all the ways in which the stories are built around this, and of course the ongoing relationship between A&M and Baylor, recriminations that go back and forth uh, between them. So it's really an interesting topic to go in and research because there's so many layers you got to dig through.
0: It was extremely complex, and, and at the time that I came across the story, I was wanting to write a book. It, it had been a long ambition. Uh, to do that. And so I I was working on a project and I thought I wanted to write something a little bit easier to kind of practice writing. So when I found the story, I thought, great, it's a single incident. It <laughs> took 10 minutes and then it took me almost 10 years to get it to, to publication. <laughs> little did you know. And little did <laughs> I know because there's even another level beneath that. And that is when you get to the uh, the Pinkerton investigation, which we yeah. haven't even uh, really kind of teased about yet. And, and you start getting even more information then. But yeah, you've got all these different levels and you've got stories being told that definitely probably self-serve A&M. And then you have Baylor acting overly righteous in that, you know, we were just defending the honor of our women and stuff like that. And and you're like, yes, but it didn't require you to carry clubs and it didn't require you to swing them at people's heads. And Sessoms was by no means the, the only one hit. One of the two young men that started the fight, and one of the first two, cadets to get out to the vehicle was also hit over the head not just once but twice and he only remembered once so we know at least one of the two licks was pretty good so he had to be told later by by a fellow cadet that you'd actually been hit twice in the head and he testified that, that he he didn't remember the first one so how is order restored that is a a very almost comical if you wrote it as a fiction account i don't think anyone would believe it and so while you have all this pandemonium going on down on the field the head Aggie leader, J.D. Langford, runs out to the Ford, climbs up on the Ford, and he's described as being somewhat of a small stature fellow, and he signals to the band director, the A&M band director in the stands, to play taps. And he's thinking, when we play taps, we all come to attention. And it didn't work. It got some of the cadets to start leaving the field, and then he calls for the national anthem. And so this is another area where there's some myths. That sometimes you'll hear that the national anthem was played multiple times. Actually, from the testimony we have, it was only played once. By the end of the National Anthem, all of the cadets had either left the field or had come to attention, and a couple of them reported that that was an occasion for Baylor guys to take some cheap shots. They were no longer (laughs) fighting back. Their discipline had kicked in, and so someone was still trying to take some cheap shots at them. Uh, But basically, by the time that the National Anthem ended, you'd had calm was restored on the field.
3: Yeah, so not only do those Baylor folks – fight dirty they're not patriotic <laughs> not at all Either. at least not in 26 right <laughs> well they, we we've got to the end of the fight then there's the aftermath and i know uh, you get get into this in the book president president burleson is uh, out of town uh, uh, Samuel oh, brooks. Brooks. Yeah, yes, president sir. brooks is out of town at the
0: time and so t- take us through the immediate aftermath of this riot so this is one of two areas where the book goes far beyond. No one has ever detailed the right like I did there. Uh, no one's ever provided almost movement by movement of where Sessoms was during the fight. But something that no one had ever looked into really was the causes, the history. Why did a, a riot like this occur? And no one's ever looked at the aftermath. All that we know is that no one was ever brought to justice for it. So the immediate aftermath is that, uh, as you had indicated, Dr. Samuel Palmer Brooks, the president of Baylor University, was not on hand. He was out of town at uh, multiple conferences in other cities and he arrived the very next day after Sessoms had had passed away. And so immediately he takes control of the situation and one of the most heartrending parts of the story, even in the original sources when you read the newspaper accounts, was that the parents arrived thinking they were going to take their son home uh, to heal, and instead they got here and found out that he had passed away that morning. Hmm. And so immediately when word gets down to A&M, uh, they lower their flags to half-mast, and then the, the war of words kind of ensues. You start having finger-pointing about, um, you know, was this side caused it, this side premeditated it. And so you had the two presidents immediately say, we need to get together. It was Brooks's idea to meet with uh, T.O. Walton, the, the president of Texas A&M, and to say, we need to have a conference, we need to get to the bottom of this, and let's not release any statements to the media until we've had a chance to talk. And so they did that. But their their press release that they had on, I think it was November 4th, which was about five days after the riot, didn't do anything to calm the, the rising fear on, on both campuses. In fact, it inflamed the Baylor students so much that they retaliated with a special edition of the Baylor paper that just let loose on A&M. That's where you start getting this, the idea that, you know, well, no, I'm sorry, that was actually after A&M's response where you get the accusation that no Aggie had ever willingly touched a touched a woman. But you do have Baylor recounting different incidents where A&M had been bullies to other conference members, even to a non-conference member out in New Mexico earlier that same year. Well, of course, the Aggies get this account in the media, and there's no way they're going to take it sitting down. And so there's actually a letter in in the Baylor archives at the Texas collection between uh, A&M's president and Baylor's president, saying how unfortunate it was, and that he was even questioning how much control Baylor's president still had of his own school, that the school paper could write something so inflammatory and so incendiary against one of their conference rivals. And he said, so unfortunately, of course our students have to respond. And they did on, on November 8th, four days later. A, a committee of 10 senior cadets spoke on behalf of the whole A&M student body, and their attitude was simply, uh, you know, we thought it was boys dressed as women. We were willing to let matters rest, but when we read what Baylor did, we had to respond. Where Baylor said that they had been picked upon in the past because they were the smaller student body, all of a sudden AM said it's just the opposite. We were the smaller student body that day. We only brought 400 to your campus, and one of our members didn't come back with us. And so you have this rising passion that these two schools are going to play each other in basketball. They're going to play each other in baseball in the spring. They're going to meet on field of competition the very next year here in Waco again. And so you start to see the potential for violence erupting again is becoming all too real. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this is something I didn't cover in the book, but for anyone that does the research on this, there were some comments made in the Waco paper about cracking schools. Um, a few days after after the fight and and I trying to tell the story I tried not to tell it in a passionate voice at all I wanted to to relay the history as it occurred and let the reader decide what they thought happened and and this would almost have been I thought a little bit too inflammatory because it never references sesam exactly but certainly what it's indicating is that some Baylor fans were saying that it was kind of a good thing or something that some schools got cracked, and which is exactly what, what was the cause of death here. And so you have that being written to the local sports editor, Jinx Tucker, of one mm-hmm. of the two Waco papers. And they're publishing this here in Waco in less than a week after the young mm-hmm. boy died. He'd barely been in the grave. Mm-hmm. And you have Waco people writing stories, to, letters to the media, uh, kind of relishing in the fact that, that this happened. Tragic. Yeah, very tragic.
3: Well, the question of who did it. Uh, there's the CSI element, uh, the the trying to assemble evidence to to figure out recrimination. The investigations that come to this, and how does that emerge? Uh, where it's A
0: and that takes the lead to investigate the incident, and so yeah. So you have a couple of tracks of investigation going on there um, immediately after the fight, the day after. You have a gathering of Waco leaders and Baylor leaders in the district attorney's office here in McLennan County. You know, the sheriff's there, the chief of police, the president of Baylor, the district attorney, district attorney-elect, and, and they all get together to kind of talk about what had happened. We don't know what was discussed, though, because there's absolutely no records of, of that, and they didn't release anything to the media. At the same time, A&M launched their own internal investigation, which the transcript of that investigation runs about almost 100 pages, and that is available in the a and archives at the Cushing Library and was an invaluable resource to, one, to reconstruct what actually happened because you had so many cadets testifying of what they saw and what they knew about where Charlie was and when, when he moved here, or when he ducked on the fence and stuff like that. And so what you don't ever find in the days after that is an official investigation in Waco. You don't find any legal investigation. In fact, the day the boy died, the inquest into his death was closed. It was ruled as a cause by party or parties unknown, and it looked like no one wanted to look any further. The, the book closes, I, I reference a, a Waco detective that had indicated to the, the, the Pinkerton detective that he was actually kind of carrying on a, a discreet investigation on his own because uh, presumably the city wasn't really looking into it and so th- that is one of the, the saddest parts to it and fortunately we have the pinkerton investigation as well which is right now not in in the public access but it's going to be a, i'm going to be able to donate a copy to both baylor and texas AM with the family's permission the Sesame's family permission and so i have one of only two known copies of it right now in, in my files at home and there's a lot of testimony from people around waco that where they start to speculate almost immediately, about who the killer was. And so no one ever was was held account. No name was ever speculated in any media account. And in fact, it wasn't until 2011 when uh, Kevin Sherrington of the Dallas Morning News was the first person ever to to speculate about a possible name. And he got his name from the archives at the Cushing Library at Texas A&M because they have a document there that claims who the killer is. And it's odd that they that AM hasn't ever bothered to, to look into this to, to pull this forward and, and to write a story about it to say, well, at least someone was was fingered at the time. And so it's kind of been there underneath our nose. The the thing is though, he's not the only suspect. There there are some other really good suspects that, that needed a little bit deeper look into them. And a lot of the information that Pinkerton detective acted upon was from leads that were passed to him by the a investigators. Yeah, there, there's something unusual
3: about this document. Tell us a little bit about this document that names the killer.
0: Yeah, so the first thing is it's anonymous. We don't know who it is. So already it, it loses a little bit of credibility and in my mind as the researcher, I wish I'd known who wrote it. There's some internal evidence of how things are referenced like the first quarter of the century and all that give an indication that some of the principals maybe were still alive and some had recently passed. So it makes me think there was a very early authorship. Uh, A&M has had it in their archives at least since the 1970s, but they, they claim they don't know who actually donated it. And the document references four witnesses, but none of them are named either. And, in fact, some of the facts that they state in the, in the two-page document that named Sesame's killer we know are factually incorrect. So, so some of the statements they make are not corroborated by other evidence that we know from primary sources. And so that kind of weakens it. But the the bombshell, obviously, is they name the the killer as a former Baylor student by the name of Hubert Connolly. And so Hubert Connolly um, had graduated in 1924 and had been a popular athletic figure here around Waco at Baylor, had had a very successful uh, sports career here and had some important ties. For anybody familiar with Waco's history, the Connelly Air Force Base that used to be here, he is distantly connected to, to that individual. You had Senator Connelly from Texas at the time, I think Tom mm-hmm. Connelly. And that would have been a a distant relative of his his as well. And so Connelly Compton Funeral Home in in Waco today is is from that family. They were a very prominent family, at least through the middle of the 20th century here in in Waco. And so he was fingered very early on in in the investigation of the Pinkerton, but he's also the the person that is named in the document at Texas A&M. What do you think? <laughs> Not gonna say. <laughs> yeah. Is it okay to be coy? So <laughs> the mystery uh, remains. Then, yeah. So what I do for the reader is is I don't tell. I, I honestly have my my lead suspect. Sure. Uh, just from having having read it and, and lived with this story for so long, but but one of the things that when I went through it, I I thought you know for me to accuse someone of a murder now, when they're deceased and they can't defend themselves and there is no smoking gun per se. There's no deathbed confession, at least not that we have found yet. That was something I wrestled with. I thought, how far do I go? How far should I go? And being a first-time author, how far can I legally go? Can, can a descendant come back and sue me for something I'm saying about a, a deceased relative? But but I thought I would kind of take the point of let the reader decide. I'm mm-hmm. going to put out all the facts as, as far as it could be ascertained. The document we're talking about, I reproduce it in one of the uh, appendices of the book uh, where someone can read it word for word as it's in the A&M archive so they don't have to drive to College Station to, to fish it out. But there there are four strong suspects that I, I really look at in the book. Mm-hmm. There were other names that were, were named. They were investigated and don't seem to be very substantial. One one thing I don't mention in the book, and, and this was very intriguing, is that the murder weapon was apparently dropped. After the the fatal blow was struck, whoever swung the fatal blow dropped the club on the field and was seen leaving the scene. individual came back a couple of days later and wrote a letter stating that someone had picked up the weapon and it was in Daleon, Texas, of all things. And so I had the name of the individual that was said to pick it up. And in 2012, when I was researching this, I looked up and I could only find one individual in Dalyon, Texas with that last name, and I could never reach that person. So after the book was published, I actually went back to DeLeon, Texas to see if we could find in one of the streets there, one of the main streets has that same family name. So I suspect there may be some connection. Now, that wouldn't be the murderer in in any form or fashion, but it was someone that picked it up almost as a macabre souvenir. You know, the Jesse Washington story here in Waco Mm -hmm. of a a lynching that had happened in 1916. People took fragments of the body as as souvenirs. And so this is only nine years or ten years after and so that was just something odd that people did in those days that, that they wanted a, a relic of what had happened and so it's very possible that the the murder weapon or the alleged murder weapon is still out there and I'd hope to uncover that definitively one way or the other but couldn't uh, couldn't reach anyone to to Be able to ask about that. Also, thought how weird for that person if they were going to call 85 years or something like that, <laughs> saying, By the way, do you have a murder weapon on hand? That, you know, do you have a bloody stick? <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, I just happened to have one right here. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, you know, what, what a wonderful story they could tell if they did know. They said, Well, eh, that's kind of been handed down to the family. It's We've wondered if someone was ever going to call. So um, I, I intend to try some point in the future to look at it. Uh, there are still little threads of this story that I probably will kick around from time to time to see if there any more can be uh, be learned. But I, I think we pretty much know what, what there is to know at this point.
3: Now, I know there's a five-year moratorium. There's not another football game. The, the schools agree on yeah. that. Uh, but I'm interested in kind of the long memory of this event. And as you said, it, it comes to you in the 21st century. Uh, where someone says something about it. And and I'd like to ask, and it's unusual now because we don't play A&M in football anymore, kind of what this incident meant over time as people kind of reflected and looked back on it and as it came up from time to time.
0: So that that was, that's something I'm still uncovering a little Mm -hmm. bit. As I meet more people from a and M. I I find out just more and more that they know something happened. This story is much more alive at a and than it is in Waco and at Baylor. I really have not met uh, people here in Waco or on the Baylor campus that know of this story. Maybe one or two has heard something. I, I got to speak at the Sports Hall of Fame when the book came out back in August at their, their book fair and had a couple of people associated with Baylor University that came up and said, I've heard about this story. I've wanted to know this for years. And, and we're excited they were going to be able to read it. Baylor kind of just moved on. And in a most unfortunate way, we had our own tragedy just a, a less than three months later when the basketball team uh, was traveling to UT, and, and the bus carrying the basketball team was struck in Round Rock, Texas, a, a very popular story here, well-known, called the Immortal 10. And so Baylor, was, it, it was very convenient to, to say, you know, let, let A&M bury their own dead, it, you know, metaphorically speaking. We've got our own now that mm-hmm. we have to tend to, literally. Yeah. But at A&M, the story lived on. And, and so it's been uh, mythologized. When you hear what some people think, uh, for example, that Sessoms was in the band or there's these weird jokes online on Aggie discussion boards that he was a medic. I don't know why you'd have a medic in, in college. But that they, they really don't know his name. Uh, they don't know the facts of the story. Uh, they know that the biggest legend around the story is that the cadets seized their own parade cannon commandeered a train and set out for Waco to level the Baylor campus in retaliation. And that's been a, a story that is believed as fact. In fact, it's presented as fact in a and centennial history, written in 1976. But there's absolutely no contemporary substantiation that that ever happened. It, it is interesting, in the 1927 A&M yearbook, oddly enough called the Longhorn, at that time, there's a picture of a cannon on a train. And so I, I surmise that that is probably someone saw that after the fact and built a legend up around it, and that mm-hmm. legend became fact after enough times mm-hmm. of being retold. Uh, but AM still knows about it right now, and, and it's still somewhat of a, a weird sore spot. And that was something that the depth of it, I, I wasn't anticipating that was that strong. In my research, I'd called the commandant's office, and I'd called the office of the Corps there to, to ask about maybe interviewing someone that could tell me their side of, what they know about it. And both times I was told they didn't know about it. They didn't know what I was talking about. And yet now as I, I get to, to meet more A&M graduates and all, and have spent a little bit of time there in at Texas A&M, they do know about the story. They just don't know a lot about it. And what they know is a myth. And, and that is the worst thing, I think, to honor the memory of, of the young man that was slain, is to say we don't remember who he was, we don't remember the circumstances, but we remember all this stuff that actually didn't happen that we've been told happened. And so one of of the things I really was honored to do in the book was get to tell his story, to get to humanize him, Mm -hmm. tell as much of his story as I could, even his high school years as as best I could, uh, stories about where his family lived and where they moved, because he's been lost in this whole story. Mm -hmm. The story has been, I I call it in the beginning of the book, um, uh, echoes of a right and whispers of a murder. That's what haunted the the rivalry for years. There was this subplot to the A&M Baylor game that something bad had happened sometime and everyone had just kind of forgotten what those details were. And so I wanted to recapture those details. I wanted to say this was a, a young man with a bright future, 24 years old. Uh, this was a real human. He, he felt real pain. He suffered for several hours before he really died. And it's not some urban legend. And it's almost grown into an urban legend. And I wanted to recover that history. And, and I wanted to tell it accurately mm-hmm. uh, so that um, if anyone disputes it in the future, someone can point and say, you need, you need to read this. The, mm-hmm. This will set the story straight.
3: Well, I think you've done that, and uh, I'm looking at the cover of the book, and Sessoms is, is looking back at us uh, from the cover there.
0: Is he memorialized at all on Texas A&M campus? No, and that was something in the, the publication process that I, I was very gently challenged on, uh, to say, you know, well, but, but we do know about it. And, and my, my reply was to say, but there's no plaque, there's no memorial, and, and A&M's great about that type of stuff. And, in fact, maybe one of the best in the nation about that and remembering their history. And, and that's why no one knows his name. So there's going to be a lot of Aggies that say, oh, I've heard about this story, but I didn't know his name was Charles Sessoms. And actually, he went by Charlie. And so I, I call him Charlie. Mm-hmm. And that year in their, their yearbook, they ran a one-page memoriam to him that's reproduced in the photo section of this book. And one of their students, fellow students wrote a, a poem called At the Eleventh Hour, and, and in that poem, he says, Aggie of ours and manhood's prime, time leaves little but names. But you and yours will always live in, Aggie's hall, in Aggie Halls of Fame. And yet he hasn't. And so I take that line and, and I dedicate the book to Charlie, to his memory, and to say, now your name will always live. To try to do what should have been done all along. Baylor shouldn't have forgotten about it. Waco shouldn't have been so dismissive. But a shouldn't have forgotten about it as well. We never should have forgotten his name. You know, there could have been a trophy when, when the two schools were playing, You know, the, the Charlie Sessoms Memorial Trophy or something like that. And that would have been a fitting way for the two schools to come back to say, yeah, we were both wrong. Hmm. You know, the, the Aggies didn't have to rush on the field, but Baylor didn't have to carry weapons in there. Yeah. And when someone did, they didn't have to swing it in a way that was with deadly force. Hmm.
2: Do you think that it's been kind of buried because it doesn't paint either in a very good light? Absolutely, 100%. Uh, in
0: fact, that was suggested in the immediate days after, here in the Waco paper again. Jinx Tucker, who was a, a, an early sports writing legend here in, in Texas, had said, you know, to, to end the rivalry would be like locking the barn after the, the horse got out. It was already over. And he said the fact that it had resulted in such tragedy probably would temper everyone's spirits in the future because they would be afraid to lose control. They don't want a repeat of it. That everyone had realized, you know, what, what a waste this was that, that a young man had died over. Something so petty as a, a prank at a football game. And so he'd cautioned everyone. Why don't we just forget about it and, and move beyond? And then I mentioned the Immortal 10 incident where the several members of the Baylor basketball team and some other students were killed in Round Rock. So Baylor had an excuse. Baylor said, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to move on from that. And then when you had the two schools, it took a month, but they, they severed contracts. And they didn't just sever the contract in football. They severed all contracts. All athletic contact was broken off between the two schools. And, and they didn't designate for how long. And they waited five years. And, and if, when you look at that, if someone's going through school a little bit slow, <laughs> it made sure they had time to get out mm. so that when the rivalry resumed, anyone that would have been associated with it would no longer be among the two student bodies. And so, yes, I, I think absolutely. It was easier to forget because it was a shame on both houses. Uh, this never should have happened. And no one wanted to stand up and really take blame for it. And, you know, you can speculate that, and I do about one of the suspects that claimed he knew a lot. And at the end of the book, I, I kind of tell you what happened to the different suspects, what went on with their lives and all. And on his, I speculate, did he ever think about this? Was he ever concerned about what he claimed he knew, but he wouldn't tell? And And you wonder how the people that, Other people that saw stuff and new stuff, did did they wrestle with that morally later in life to say, you know, I should have spoken up. I I saw what happened. I knew what happened. The sad thing is, even if they had, nothing would have resulted. Mm -hmm. It would have been a small fine. It would have been a misdemeanor crime. And and that's one of the things, a spoiler alert there in the book, that had they even found the killer, there apparently was no appetite for justice here in in McLennan County.
2: Mm. So I guess the lesson is, Sometimes when we're at these football games, we let our emotions run high, but they should never run too high.
0: Yeah, I cringe when I see fans now getting a little bit carried away. I cringe when you see a a fight break out on the field. I saw one at a high school game earlier this year, and you had a student come running in and literally dove over people to get get in the middle of a fray. And I'm like, gosh, if if you knew what the consequences could be, you wouldn't be so eager to rush in. You might be a little bit calmer. Mm -hmm. And it certainly uh, makes me a little bit more moderate fan. I'm a still a rabid (laughs) fan I'll cheer on my game days and all Uh, but it makes you keep some things in check because you realize at the end of the day it's just a football game just a basketball game just a baseball game and no one needs to lose their life over something so petty as college performance or a college game or a juvenile prank Be, be the bigger man
2: perfect so if I want to find the book again let's repeat the title and where we can pick it up
0: Sure. It's called Battle of the Brazos, a Texas football rivalry, a riot, and a murder. And it is available on all the the big book sites. You can go to amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com. You can go to TAMU Press, that's T-A-M-U press.com. That's the publisher, uh, Texas A&M Press. And you can also go to uh, tgweb.com. You will have to email with me, uh, but if you want an autographed copy, I will sell it to you at a discounted price, uh, <laughs> just as a thank you for coming to the website. And um, shipping will be included in that. But uh, would love to get out there in readers' hands. Anyone that no- wants to know more, would love to hear from them. I would encourage you to order the book. And uh,
3: as uh, Tim has has teased, he lays out the suspects, so you can draw your own
0: conclusions <laughs> yes.
3: based on great research. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks.
0: Thank you both. This, this has been a great experience, and I appreciate you helping get the story out there.
1: Cross.
2: Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com, and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is "Cross the Brazos at Waco," performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time.
1: I'm a The muddy Brazos below. Cross the Brazos, it waco wake home. Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos, it waco I'll walk straight in old San Antonio. Then the night alive with gunfire, he knew that at last it had been found. As the ranger's badge showed brightly, El Bandito lay on the ground. Carmela knew he was dying, that all of her dreams were in vain. As she kissed his lips for the last time, she heard him whisper again. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio I'm safe when I reach San Antonio.